We just want to thank you for being here, and uh, hopefully you got your notes tonight. And uh, we're starting in chapter 11 uh, of the book of Revelation. And uh, so we're going to start with prayer and just jump right in. Father, tonight as we come, we ask for, uh, Lord, your blessing on our time together. Uh, Lord, we ask for humility, Lord, that we might approach you, Lord, just depending on your wisdom, uh, Lord, on your spirit to teach us, Lord, that your word would impact us. Lord, we thank you so much for just the privilege it is to have your word and to, to study it, and Lord, just to be loved by you. And Lord, we just ask it all in Jesus' name. Yeah. And uh, so as we um, start chapter 11, uh, your notes are very uh, short tonight, uh, and that is because we're going to go a lot of different places tonight, and um, uh, and so hopefully you will uh, join us as we go, and you will read, that way uh, you can participate. Sometimes I, uh, questions make me very nervous, but I also feel like that's not good just for you to sit and look at me. So uh, reading, and, uh, and hopefully that will help you be engaged, and, and you won't all fall asleep uh, on me. Uh, just a couple things, if you remember uh, where, we're, where we're at, what has gone on. Uh, chapter uh, 1 through 3 uh, was written to the churches, and we looked at each one of those uh, churches. Chapters 4 and 5, we saw the visions of what was going on in heaven. Uh, chapter 6, we begin to see the judgments, the seals, verses uh, 1 through 6. And then when we got to the seventh seal, if you remember, we begin to see the trumpets. And so in chapter 10, uh, we saw the trumpets and um, those judgments as they unfolded. We've seen things like a false peace. We've seen wars. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen destruction. We've seen uh, uh, demonic forces unleashed from the abyss and then right here in chapter uh, 11 and we looked at the end of chapter 10 it's like this prelude that just kind of stops everything and reminds them of all that is going on but yet that God is in charge that God is in control and I think that's very important for two reasons one for us as we read through this uh, we understand that God is in control, that God has a purpose and a plan. And how you view the book of Revelations will impact that, right? If you hold to a, a, um, a pre-rapture uh, dispensationalist position like I do, there's a difference between the church and uh, the nation of Israel that God is working to redeem Israel throughout the tribulation period. And so we see a lot of that. But if you are someone who is living through the tribulation, if you believe in the literal seven-year tribulation, can you imagine going through all of this and watching the death and the destruction and the heartache, and yet you have a copy of the book of Revelation, and you can stop here and be reminded that God is in charge, uh, that God has not abandoned you, that God has not forgotten you. And I think that is so important even for church today. That when we gather together and we share prayer requests and we're there for each other, it's that reminder that we're not alone, but especially we know that the Lord is with us. And so when we get into chapter 11, there are two major views on, 
uh, what this means. And uh, I've been telling you this as I have these commentaries. So this commentary views this as a picture of the church. This commentary uh, views it as a literal temple, but yet the witnesses are not literal witnesses. This one views it as a literal temple and literal two witnesses. All three of these are Southern Baptist. All three of these are attached to the Southern Baptist Convention. So it's not like it's a Methodist, a Lutheran, and a Presbyterian. Uh, these are people that are in the same denomination, go to the same convention, but yet all have differences of opinions. And so uh, I just want to be uh, very uh, brief tonight because I don't think we'll get a long way in this. But just looking at these, uh, kind of two different views on this chapter. And uh, if you'd like to, we're going to just jump right in here in verses 1 and 2. But if you're taking notes, there's a blank there. And uh, I didn't give you the answers tonight. I'm sorry. It's been a crazy busy week. And these notes didn't go out till like 530, all right, today. So it, God's commitment to his promises. God's commitment to his promises. I believe chapter 11 is a fulfillment of God working toward the Jewish people, toward the promises that he made throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Starting in verse 1, it says, verses 1 and 2, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Um, if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, you will be able to see that this uh, was a, a plant that grew that they used to measure things. It grew uh, somewhere between 10 to 15 feet. And so uh, you could measure something based off of that. You could use that to get dimensions. And when we look at the Old Testament, and we're going to look at these, um, there are two times in the Bible usually when measuring something has a meaning. And one, it is very often used as judgment. God is measuring out an area that is going to be judged. Or two, you see, and we're going to look at these in just a minute, so uh, you, you don't have to just take my words for it. It can mean ownership, right? Think of having a survey of your property, and that survey reveals what is yours, what you own compared to what your neighbor owns. Now, there is some who read through this chapter and say, well, is this a temple that is built for the tribulation period? Is this a temple that will be in the millennial kingdom? Or is it not a temple really at all? And I want to show you here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and Daniel's chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, that I believe there will be a literal temple during the literal seven-year period of the tribulation. 
Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you know what's going on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they're trying to convince them that the day of the Lord has already come. They've missed it. They, they've suffered through the judgment of God. But in verses 3 and 4, it says, Let no one deceive you by any means. All right? He's warning them that there's always going to be people who try to trick them, try to convince them that this is not the way it is. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. And that man of sin is, I believe, of the Antichrist. The son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I believe that is talking about when the Antichrist um, fulfills what Daniel said in verses 26 and 27, the abomination of desolation. When he comes into the temple at the three and a half year mark and says, you're going to worship me. The Jews cannot have the temple. They cannot have their sacrifices. We see this is mentioned in chapter uh, verse two, and it says the Gentiles trampled the holy city for 42 months or three and a half years. The two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years. But listen to what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. I think it's also not just a picture that there will be a temple, but if there are offerings going on, look there in the sacrifices and the offerings. If they are having the sacrifices and the offerings, they have to have somewhere to do what? To have the sacrifices and the offerings. And according to the Old Testament, it would have been in the temple. And it gives us those specifics. And so I think what we see here is the fact that there is a literal temple in this period of time. And so uh, it's very important, though, to know that there are sometimes, I believe, when you see all of these references in the Old Testament to a temple being rebuilt, that some of them are talking about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And uh, if you want to, please turn here with me. And uh, if you would, you can read these. Uh, Amos chapter 9, somebody would find that. Micah chapter 4. Haggai chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 6. And uh, my notes are very scribbled. I, uh, I'm not... I'm not sure, I know you're not supposed to be on your phone when you drive, but I'm not sure if you're supposed to be taking notes when you drive. So, uh, these have all been done in the car over the last eight hours of this week. So, um, but anyway, uh, the temple, 
could be built very quickly, right? Uh, if you've been to the ark, you know that the ark was built in a two-year period uh, by a thousand workers. But if an entire nation, let's say the Jewish nation, had uh, the go-ahead to build the temple uh, where the dome of the rock sits, it could be put up very, very quickly. But these are all verses, if I wrote them down right when I was driving, uh, about a temple being rebuilt. And so, if anybody found uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 11. That's actually in your notes. It is in my notes. Where at? It's on the second. Hey, holy moly, look at there. I'm on top of this one, ain't I? Well, if somebody would like to read verses 11 as well. Yeah, thank you for. Uh, on that day, I will rise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Its damages. I will raise it up, raise up its ruin, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So we see a temple, but yet the Gentiles are worshiping at it. But yet, if you look at the temple that we see in this passage of Scripture in 11, it is written without a court of Gentiles. Now, some people hold that there are no Gentiles saved during the tribulation period because there is no court of the Gentiles. I strongly disagree with that. I believe that it is not given in that passage of Scripture because God did not have a covenant with the Gentiles. He had a covenant with the Jewish people. And so while there will be Gentiles saved in the tribulation period, it is not God's covenant promise like it is with the Jews. And so we'll talk about that later and, and, and really kind of dive into that. But I want to just read these verses to show you that this is not a one-time instance. It's, it's all over the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, if somebody would read those since it's on there too. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so here, not only do we see this temple is being built, we see that who is the teacher in this temple? The Lord. And so, if I was going to say, could it be the Millennial Temple, or would it be the Tribulation Temple? I believe he's talking about the Millennial Temple. There's another one, Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. It's not in your notes, so if you found it, you have overachieved. So, a couple specifics that you could hear him or not. One, it'll be greater than the first one. We know that Herod's temple and uh, the temple that Zerubbabel uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah built were not. They were they were not in the splendor of Solomon's temple. And you know that when. Ezra and Nehemiah were building the temple that the people were discouraged, right? The people who saw the first temple, what? Wet when they saw the difference. Uh, it went on in that, if you would, and uh, read that for me just again, Matt, one more time. Yep. And uh, since I'm forgetful. The people of Israel were discouraged because they 
future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place, I will bring peace. Mm -hmm. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. And so peace. We know that Jerusalem has not had peace, even in the days of the Roman Empire. We know that that intertestament period, if you've ever wrote or read any about the um, years between Malachi and the arrival of John the Baptist, they were always revolting. There was always rebellion. We know that uh, AD 70, uh, the children of Israel, um, uh, Jerusalem was crushed by the Roman Empire and the city and the temple and all of that was destroyed. And um, some Bible scholars view that there were not only just Jerusalem, but 90 smaller towns in the general vicinity uh, that were destroyed. And, um, and so we look from that day on, right? Even after Rome fell, um, it was conquered. You look even into the Crusades, it has been constant warfare. You look after the uh, Crusades when the Turks and the Ottomans and the Islam empires uh, controlled the Middle East. It was not peace. And so then after that, the British and all of the colonial powers, Jerusalem has never experienced peace. And so if we're looking at that, it has to be fulfilled. Now, we're going to look at here in just a second about those who don't view it as a literal temple and what that means. So that'll, that'll answer some of those questions. What was the Haggai reference? 2, verse 9. And so I believe, once again, you're seeing that fulfilled in the millennium. But Zechariah chapter 2 Verses 1 through 5. It's in the notes if somebody would read that for us. And I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring rod in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And there was an angel who talked with me going down, and another angel was coming out to me again. Said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So once again, we see this measuring idea, right? This idea of someone measuring Jerusalem. But if you notice anything about this, he says there's no need for walls. He said there's no need for earthly defenses because why? The Lord will be the defense. Now, that can be interpreted one of two ways. One, you can look at it as a millennial kingdom reign where the Lord is with us. The Lord is in the presence. Or two, some would say, no, this is a picture of the church. Because the church doesn't have walls. It is a worldwide organization that the Lord fights for us. And you see there with multitudes. And so uh, what we see, I wanted you to see this measuring. This idea of what? Ownership. That it all belongs to the Lord. And never forget when you read through the book of Revelation. Or you read through the book of Daniel. Or you read through the book of Ezekiel. Or you read through the book of Isaiah. All of these books that have so much in prophecy and so much that is that is hard to figure out remember that the lord owns it all all right 
It's the church, it's Israel, it's the Lord's. And it's about his promises. Never forget that everything in our faith depends on who the Lord is and the promises that he's made. His promises. That's because he is faithful to those promises. He does not lie. He doesn't grow weary. The last one, and then we'll stop for a time of discussion and looking at the second view, is Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Places like Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and we're not going to go there for the sake of time. It talks about that regular sacrifice will be abolished. The New Testament church, we do not offer sacrifices, do we? He is our sacrifice. And so if you're reading Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, that the sacrifices must be abolished, then there has to be a temple for the Jews to offer that sacrifice in for them to then be told that they cannot sacrifice. And so how does that fit in with the church? What, what in the church would be taken away that would cause the church to be angry that it's a sacrifice, right? Something that we do in a sacrificial way. Well, you could say all kinds of things. You could say, well, 
the privilege to worship or uh, the privilege to do this or to do missions or share the gospel. Um, but I think that's a struggle there. And so Daniel 12 is one of those verses that really it, it, you have to deal with it. In Matthew 24 and verses 14 and 15, if somebody would like to flip there. Matthew 24, 14 and 15. And then make me stop. Just don't throw anything at me. Somebody would read verses 14 and 15. In this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for witness unto all nations, and they shall then shall the end come. When ye therefore see, shall see the abomination of desolation spoke of in Daniel the prophet, standing in a holy place. Whoso be it, let him understand. Yes. So we see that the gospel must be preached into the whole world. He, Jesus even says the abomination of desolation will occur and then the end will come. And so depending on how you view the book of Revelation, that's going to impact that. What is the abomination of desolation? What is that look like for the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth? Now we know that not every tribe and tongue is heard. Now we know every nation has gospel influence. Uh, we know that you can look on the map, but there are hard to reach places that are still unreached. If you ever do the study about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, you will hear them say unreached people groups. They talk about that all the time, unreached people groups. So when I we say all of this in these two temples, it's very, it's very important because before we can jump into the witnesses, you can't just skip over this, right? There's, there's a significance to it. Now, exactly what that means is, is the, the debate. But what I believe is this. I believe during the first three and a half years of tribulation, the Antichrist makes peace with the nation of Israel. I believe they're allowed to build their temple. I believe they're allowed to worship away in the way that the Old Testament says. All right. I believe that through that period of time, you have 144,000 evangelists who are preaching the gospel. And people are beginning to see that this religious system that they have is not enough. It doesn't answer the problems. At the three and a half year period, when Satan is thrown from heaven, and uh, then he begins to truly, through the Antichrist, uh, go into the temple, take the Jewish system of worship away. You then see the woman who flees for 42 months into the desert to be protected from this persecution. Some people say that's the church that is alive during this period running, but I, I just don't think it's a good fit because the church is talked about later in the book of Revelation. And during that 42 months, that three and a half year period, what we would call the Great Tribulation, these last um, six judgments or seven are going to happen, we see the Jewish nation hunted and persecuted um, to its full extent. But yet there is still a remnant that is being kept away um, wherever they run to the desert for protection. And so I think we see that because then you look in the rest of Revelation, and it kind of follows that pattern. But I say all of that because before we move into the witnesses, we need to establish that whether it's the temple 
whether it's the church, it's the Lord's, okay? And there in verse 16, which you see in your notes, is the verse that people use to say it's not the temple. And so questions about, um, about the verses about the temple. I can't explain them all to you. All I can tell you is there are a lot of verses about a rebuilt temple. Can, so can, I, can I give a different take on that? Because all of these verses, all the prophets, with the exception of Matthew, the prophets either before the second temple or during the rebuilding of the second mm -hmm. temple. The, um, I'm trying to get my mind back around. If you go to the second Thessalonians, mm -hmm. also, you know, while the second temple was still on the earth. So in 66 AD, with Jewish revolt, Rome was thrown, basically thrown out of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Nero sends Vespasian and one of the other guys, Titus, I believe, mm -hmm. or Tiberius, back to Jerusalem. So from 66 to 70, you have that same time period when the temple was destroyed. And I can't remember the guy who was in it, but there was another abomination of desolation like was in uh, previous the, uh, 400, 400 years of silence. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe, was, who was the one that, the first one that slaughtered a hog on the altar. Yeah. I mean, I know this, this isn't the Bible, it's history post-Bible, but even the book of Revelation does not recognize the fall of Jerusalem. Well, no, it does. historical event. There's no place in the Bible that recognizes mm -hmm. yeah. the fall of Jerusalem. And, and why would that be if it, if it had happened during the writing of the Bible? In what way do you mean? Well, I mean, that's about as much part of Jewish history and history of the church as you can have. Yeah. The fall of Jerusalem. But I think, once again, we, we have to understand that the historical evidence is important, but yet we still have to say, well, just what does the scripture say? Oh. And so, you know. But one other thing you were talking about, re-sacrificing, and this is personal belief when Jesus mm -hmm. said, it's finished, it's finished, there's never going to be a sacrifice. Yeah, but I believe that the Jews who are not Christians in the first three and a half year period are going to be sacrificing. And uh, you can go to Israel today, and find, uh, I, I can't think of the name of it, the temple. Oh, I can't, they're, they're literally trying to recreate your uh, Old Testament items to go in a temple. And uh, so I, do, I believe that the Jews are looking forward to that day of the Messiah to come, uh, which why they open the door to the Antichrist, because they are promised all of these things that they hold on to. The issue in, with Second Titan, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we look here in verse 3 and we are looking here about all that is going on toward them, their patience, their faith, the uh, persecution, the uh, tribulation. And in verse 5 it says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So we know that they were going through tribulation time. They were going through a time of great difficulty. And so when you go past that verse, though, into verse 6, it says, And now that you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains would do so 
until he is taken out of the way. And so I, I think that there is absolute historical evidence like Dave is talking about that there was all of this going on uh, in Jerusalem and the fall of the temple and all of that. But when it goes on and says, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, that there is coming a day when the restraining of the spirit is not going to be there. And so it wouldn't be talking about a time that has happened to them. It's looking toward a future day because it goes on and says, uh, verses eight, that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Well, the Lord didn't come back and destroy whoever was committing the abomination of desolation in AD 60, 67, you know. So we have to look at what follows those verses. And so I believe it is looking toward that former, the future event, um, because what we see there in verse 9 is the coming of the lawlessness, one, is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who, among those who, where am I now? My brain's not working. Yes, sorry. And so I think we see that those verses one through five are absolutely applicable to the time that was going on. But when you continue reading, it's clearly not looking at that day. It's looking for this time when the Lord's the one that comes back. The Lord's the one that makes this right. The Lord's the one that defeats um, the enemy. So I think that's one of those where, like, again, we just have to continue just to pour in. What does it say? And what does it say after that? What does it say before that? Etc. So, other questions? We're about out of time. So we're only going to get through the first two tonight, I'm guessing. All right. Now the view that it's the church. Well, 2 Corinthians 6 talks about the temple of God. And what is the temple in the new covenant? We know that, right? It is not a building. It's not sitting on the Dome of the Rock location. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we clearly see that the church is who God is working through, right? That he, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is no disagreement on that. And just like uh, Dave was saying, that Christ's sacrifice was final, right? We do not go back to that. Paul writes to them, don't go back to the former things. Don't go back to that. The real issue that it comes down to what we believe about the rapture. If the rapture happens and the church is gone, then the Lord begins to work to redeem Israel. If the church is not raptured, then when we read through the book of Revelation, you can see when he talks about the temple could be the people of God, the, the people of God. And so if you flip over onto the, um, well, whatever page that is that you have somewhere here, in my 48 pages of notes. There it is. Because he goes on in different places and tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, you also, as 
Thank you. Living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So is this rebuilding of this new temple Christ building the church, right? Because we see that it's evidently taught that the church is being built. The church is the spiritual house. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so has the church as the spiritual nation replaced Israel, his own special people. The same language that is used about the Old Testament Jewish people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And so the view that the church is a temple in the New Testament, is this new covenant, is absolutely true. So both of them are true. The question becomes then, what happens to the church during the book of Revelation? If it doesn't leave, with a pre-tribulation rapture, then you can read through these references to the temple and say, well, maybe it is the church. So when we talk about what we believe, that the book of Revelation is all in the future, it doesn't really matter. It, it's not that way because it shapes how you view the rest of the scripture and what we believe about what is going to happen. And so if the church is gone, both of these are still true. The church is absolutely a spiritual house. We are absolutely spiritual temples. There's no doubt about it. And so it's not a, this is unbiblical and this is unbiblical. It is, how does it unfold? And so those are the two main views. And so for those who hold a mid-tribulation view, all right, that means that the rapture happens at the halfway point. Then what we see here in all of this in Revelation chapter 11 is all of this going on here is that but leave out the court that is outside the temple and do not measure it, all right? That is the view that the church is gone, all right? Now they're gone, and the Lord is at work. If those, for those who don't believe in a pre-trib or mid-trib, but believe that when the Lord comes again in Revelation 19, that the church goes up, meets him in the air, and comes back, there are some that hold to that view. And so really what you believe about when that event happens or if it happens at all then sets the standard for what you believe so for me personally right the church leaves all right at the pre-tribulation rapture that's what i believe all right and then all these things that the bible says about the church is true we're the temple of god we're the spiritual nation all of those things but we're in heaven then god begins to remember all of the promises he hasn't forgotten that he made to the nation of Israel. And then he begins to fulfill them. Not because of the nation of Israel, but because of what? The promises of God. And so everything is true. There's not, it's not an if or then. It's this is how God has worked. And this is what God is doing to the Jewish nation. The issue becomes how do you view Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11. It's not in your notes, so you'll have to, Flip there, if you will. Or you could just say, heck with it, you've rambled on long enough. And I'll be okay with that too. Romans chapter 11. So, for some, when they read Romans chapter 11, 
It is clearly teaching that Christ is done with the nation of Israel and he is working through the church. All right, that is the phone call I got a few weeks ago that I was telling you about. Um, the fact that we worship on the wrong day of the week. And, um, and so we see this in chapter 10 that Israel needs the gospel. Israel rejects the gospel. And in verses 1 it says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So the question is, is Paul viewing the fact that God is going to do something special through the nation of Israel, or is he just talking about Jews that are going to be saved, just like everybody else? We're all saved only one way, but yet they're just a part of the New Testament church. That's where the issue is. If you go down to verse 11 and verse 12, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches from the world and their failure riches from the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So there's that Gentiles reference that we see in Revelation, that the Gentiles are going to be ruling and reigning over Jerusalem that 42 months in the second half of the tribulation. But if you flip down to verses 25 and verse 26, this is where it's all hinges on, all right? What you believe. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Now, once again, what you believe about that changes how you move forward. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That is a direct quote from Isaiah uh, 59 verses 20 and 21. And so what does that mean? When you read that and when I read that, what does that mean to you? You've listened to me ramble on long enough. You're... Right. To who? Well, in this text, though, he's talking to Israel, right? He's talking about all of all of Israel. Yes, is that spiritual Israel? So which subset of Israel is that? Absolutely. That's where the discussion is. Israel is no longer a nation in the New Testament. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yet we know that, that God knows his own, right? Just like why I believe the 144,000 are 144,000 Jewish evangelists is because the Lord knows his own, right? The Lord knows who are his. So that is the question. Is it spiritual Israel in the church? Is it the fact that God is going to fulfill all of those promises in the Old Testament? And that's why I think you get back to Revelation chapter 11. This is just my opinion. Why he tells them not to build the court of the Gentiles. Because his promise for these evangelists, the two that we're going to look at next in two weeks, since I won't be here next week. For those who are the witnesses are going to be killed and raised up 
is for the Jewish people, for them to finally fulfill the promises that they forfeited. Right? What did it say there in verse 11? Right? It was made to happen so that the Gentiles could receive the gospel. And when the fullness of the time of Gentiles has come, what does that mean? What do you think the fullness of the time of the Gentiles means? I believe so. Other thoughts. So what we believe is always intertwined. How we view the word of God. How we let it shape us. And so that is so important for you and I to know. What does it say everywhere? Not just where it says somewhere. Don't take just the book of Revelation just because it says it there. What does it say everywhere else? And how do we work that together? Uh, I think one of the, my, the, my favorite things I've ever done in all the years I've been the pastor here, all right, was preaching through the minor prophets. Because I, you probably don't have this problem because you're much more spiritual than I am. I read the minor prophets thinking they were what? Minor. I'll be honest with you, right? You get through Genesis, Exodus, uh, you get to Leviticus, you think, why am I reading the Bible at all? You know, you get discouraged, you get you get back through that though, and then you get, you know, you get into the, the, the story of Joshua and the nation of Israel, and you get into uh, the judges and all the excitement, and you get into, you know, first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and all this action's going on, and David's being chased, and Solomon's being a wise man and a fool at the same time, and and you get through all that and you start getting into some of the prophets and you're thinking, who was this guy writing to? And when was he writing to them? And, and you finally get through some of the major ones and then you get through Psalms and Proverbs and, and you get through all of this and you're like, I think I'm going to read about Jesus, right? And so then you jump to Matthew and you read Matthew and you read Mark and you read Luke and you read John. And so the minor prophets sometimes just are treated as, oh, thank you for helping me tonight. It's really appreciated. But reading through those absolutely had changed how I view the Word of God. Absolutely. Because I was definitely raised that, 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 that God was done with the Jewish people. And, and when I read those books, it's not that the Jewish people are, are good in any way, but God made them certain promises. Just like He made us certain promises. And I believe the one thing that it has done for me the most is that if God makes a promise, if God makes a promise, not a proverb, a promise, then he will keep it. And so then that led me to start saying, okay, well, how is this promise fulfilled? And how is this promise fulfilled? And Jesus shows us clearly that he fulfills all of the promises, right? The Old Testament is written about him. The fact that he's coming, the fact that he is the, 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 the better way, that he is, all the Old Testament is a picture, right, of Christ and the sacrifice and the offering, all of it is. But it just really has helped me to remember in my own walk, when I get discouraged, when I get, because I can struggle with discouragement a lot, all right? I know you guys don't, but I struggle with discouragement a lot. And it just helped me to say, God, that's a promise. People, I don't understand all the promises and how he's going to fulfill them or exactly what that looks like for the end of times. But I just know this. When I lay my head on the pillow at night, if God said it and God promised it, I believe it. And so it has helped me 
tremendously, even though I don't know exactly how it all works out, but it has helped me a lot. So. But those are the verses for the church as the temple, and so we only got through verses 1 and 2. Um, like I said, we'll start in verse 3 in two weeks, um, and so we will have Bible study next week. Um, Brother Bill, whoever is going to be teaching, and so uh, I hope that you'll be here for that. I want to thank him for teaching because uh, he's willing to do it and usually no one else is. And so I, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate him doing that. I'll be at church camp next week, and so we would appreciate your prayers uh, for church camp uh, next week. Uh, the evangelist is going to be Jesse Webster. Pray for him. That the Lord would lead him and guide him in what he is to say. Um, we're looking forward to that.